Welcome back, journeyers, to another episode of Reed Keeper's Journey. Okay, last week we found out that Trendok is back, he knows about the Unthing, and he's willing to help. We also found out that the world is in fact changing the kids, and they have access to incredible power, but little knowledge how to use it. The Unthing wants them powerful enough to use, but weak enough to beat. The kids agree to fight the Unthing, and plan to get to it as quickly as possible so that they're strong enough to defeat the Unthing. And now, back to the story. Chapter 47 Michael woke to the sound of padded footfalls coming down the hall. Sensing they were for him, he threw off his covers, lit the lamp, and pulled on his boots. He didn't know what time it was, either very late or very early, and if the Hyperborean who strode into his quarters with two guards was surprised to see Michael prepared to meet them, he didn't show it. You are summoned. Leave the sword. Michael hadn't realized he wore the weapon and unbuckled it with reluctance. He set it down on an overly padded chair and gave the pommel a reassuring pat. Satisfied, the summoner turned on his heel and strode out the door, head held high and back ramrod straight. Michael followed, nodding to the guards who were dressed in leather and not metal armor. The two looked more like jailers than protectors of the king who Michael assumed he was about to meet. Who else would call him in the middle of the night? They marched along the quiet corridors lit by oil-filled lamps. Their smoke left dark smears on the wall as they coated the air with an acrid smell that made his nose itch. The Metaf home, though fantastic, was natural. This place of hewed stone and carved marble was created by force and left a violent, unclean feeling in the air. He smiled to himself. I never imagined I'd become a tree hugger, he thought. His guide walked in front of him and spoke without turning his head. It was obvious he didn't care whether Michael followed or even heard his directions. It wouldn't be his head that was lopped off if the king imagined himself insulted. You are to enter the chamber and kneel on your left knee with your head bowed and your right hand resting on your right knee. If you fail to do this, you will be executed. You are to stay three strides away from his majesty at all times. If you stray nearer, you will be executed. You are not to speak to his majesty unless asked a question. You are not to raise your head and look at his majesty unless so commanded. Make any movement or word deemed threatening by his majesty and you will be executed. Michael's escort stepped off to the side when the group approached the two fully armored guardsmen standing before the throne room's massive wooden doors. Motionlessly, they examined the group, dark eyes shadowed by their helmets. Michael swallowed. He wasn't scared. The battle with the Exotheneo taught him what true fear felt like. Even his nightmares of the woman with the eyes had no comparison to that terror. But he knew in the coming moments every word would count. Again, he felt like he was standing on a precipice, and the thought that his friend's lives hung in the balance sucked the moisture from his mouth. The king of the Hyperboreans sat in a shaft of moonlight descending from the glass dome high above the throne. He didn't sit like Michael thought a king would, or should. He slouched, as if bored or tired, a hand supporting his head. Michael strode into the middle of the chamber and knelt as instructed. He hadn't planned it, 
but his knee rested in the middle of the symbol Trindock had burned into the stone floor. He waited, head down, examining the etching in the rock. The symbol consisted of two concentric circles that formed the emblem and the characters that filled them. Evidently, the trick Hippolyta did allowing them to understand language didn't extend to the written word. The hieroglyphics, or runes, or letters, they could be any of those for all he knew, were the size of his hands and were perfectly spaced between the borders and each other. He caught a whiff of burnt stone from the carving, which spoke of the immense power and precision it took to create it. The enormous mark on the floor represented Trendok and his command that no harm shall come to the group. Michael figured that this was the moment he would know if the Hyperboreans would or would not heed the warning. Stand and look at me. Well, here goes nothing. Michael thought and complied with the order. Apart from the moonlight, only a few scant lamps lit the forbidding room. They gave no heat and only shed enough light to allow them to get a good look at each other and left Michael's peripheral vision in darkness. Nothing stirred as he and both the king examined one another, but Michael would eat his boot before he thought they were alone. He knew guards shrouded in darkness watched and waited for any sign of threat. He imagined their fingers caressing the fletching of arrows or rough hands resting on swords. The king was old, old and tired, but not bored, no matter how much he slouched on his throne. His eyes shone with sharp intent. Is that what power looks like? Michael thought. Before him sat a person that held power over life and death. His word was law. No matter what Leander said about sharing power with the Senate, the Hyperborean before him had spent a life of not caring or needing the approval of others. Once Michael overheard Steve's lawyer father say that people in Hollywood act like they have power, but they don't, and politicians like to act like they have no power, but they do. Was power the ability to do whatever you want without consequences? But can consequences ever truly be avoided? Or are they just delayed? Michael thought. Where are you from? The king asked, bringing Michael back to the present. He had to remain focused, but his mind kept on trying to slip away and avoid the threat of the moment. I am from far away. Do not trifle words with me. I meant no disrespect, your majesty. Michael lowered his eyes. Not the best start, he thought. Looking at the marking on the floor encouraged him. The king didn't appear hostile, just impatient. So maybe Trendock's warning protected him and his friends. Something else occurred to him. His group appearing with a person that, for all intents and purposes, was a legend might carry a lot of weight. Still, based on Leander's reaction of learning that men again walked the land, Michael knew he needed to reveal as little as possible while appearing transparent. I do not know how I came here. I stumbled through a portal and found myself surrounded by the Metep. Michael said, leaving out the part of being chased by a canth, or, if Trindok was right, being herded by the flaming hound monster. The king harumphed. Words I would have called lies if you did not stand upon the proof. How did you come to travel with the sorcerer? I didn't know it was him. I was surprised to see him as anyone. I had been looking for him to see if he could send me home, and he was under my nose the whole time. Strange, strange indeed, the king muttered to himself. He leaned on his arm 
and turned his head as if to speak to someone over his shoulder. But finding no one there, he turned back to Michael. The Metaph. Are they preparing for war? He's looking for the priest that Trindok cursed, Michael thought. Zine had warned him to beware of the priest and the king, and now Michael found himself talking to the king in the middle of the night and watching him look for his priest. He wanted to throw his hands in the air and yell, Are you kidding me? Instead, he answered the king calmly, None that I saw. Their mother did all that they could to help me and sent me here with the convoy. I saw nothing that even looked like they want to fight you. You've spoke to Hippolyta? So, she does live. And then, barely missing a beat, what does Trendock want? I have no idea, Michael said. I just want to go home. Be that as it may, Michael of the Reeds, you are tied to this, or as I suspect it is tied to you. The king nodded and smiled. No, he wasn't the least bit bored. You are here now and will remain until I've decided what to do with you and these metaph. Return him to his chambers. Two soldiers materialized from the darkness and knelt before the king. Michael mimicked their prostrations, stood, and followed them out the door. He could feel the eyes of the king boring into his back as he left. Trapped again, Michael thought, though he doubted the Hyperboreans would be as hospitable as the Metaph. He could not imagine the king giving him any aid on his quest. A quest? Hadn't he always wanted such a thing, as he read his books and ignored the muffled threats and insults his parents spat at each other in the next room? A sword and a quest. Now he had both, and the situation did not seem improved, though perhaps it was. Besides the part of where I'm chased by the minions of darkness and hunted by a demon, he thought and grunted to himself a sound that drew a glance from one of the guards. But wasn't it all relevant? The threat of failing his history exam or having to face Jack over his far-from-perfect grades at the time seemed just as intimidating as talking to a king or the mother of a people. Each situation, if handled poorly, would have profound impacts on his life. He thought he knew what cold was from his long walks at night until he was invited by Steve to go skiing in Lake Tahoe. Being exposed to temperatures that dropped to single digits opened his eyes to what cold really was. That being said, cold was cold, and it wasn't supposed to be a competition. Sure, he inwardly scoffed about people complaining on how cold it got on the Central Coast, which barely reached freezing temperatures, but who is he to judge what was cold for them? It was all relative, and therefore suffering was based on a person's frame of reference. The guards stopped and Michael pulled from contemplation, was surprised to see himself facing his door. Without a word, they left as he went into his room and found Trendock sitting in a chair, the sword resting across his lap. Chapter 48 Michael's eyes latched onto the sword, and he shoved his hands into his pockets, fighting the urge to snatch it from his unexpected guest. Trendock had given it to him as a gift, and he did not seem the type of person to take back what was once given. Still, Michael itched to hold the weapon. The big Hyperborean held out the sword to Michael, who took it and sat down, laying it across his lap. The tension that was building in his shoulders evaporated. We need to talk, Trendock said, elbows resting on his knees. 
I thought we already did that. Michael grumbled. He still hadn't fully forgiven Trendock for hiding his identity. You know when would have been a great time to talk? Before we were being held prisoner in a castle, he said, annoyed, his anger rumbling deep down inside him, but still in check. I kept your secret, but I doubted you'd keep mine. Trendock answered, equally annoyed. I was on my way to Hippolyta to discuss the surge in power I felt from her forest. Imagine my surprise when I was attacked in broad daylight by Exotheneo, only to be rescued by men. I know men, Michael Reed, and I know the evil they harbor in their hearts. Leander speaks of sin, but he would keel over if he knew what lurked in men's hearts. That monk fears man, and I say for good reason. Fine, let's talk. It wants you. I thought we already covered that. No, I mean you specifically. Heather said it wanted her. He knew it was a weak attempt at avoiding the topic, and the look that Trendock gave him said he knew it too. Okay, I know. It's been chasing me in my dreams for months, long before you even came here. There's a connection between you and it, and maybe even your own world through those cuts. I think that's why you're changing slower. It's almost like you're in a pocket of your own land. Have you noticed anything different about yourself? Michael shrugged. Not really. Not like Bear or Steve. I mean, I can sense things, I guess. But that could be my imagination. I've been told that I'm intuitive. I have had, I don't know, visions? Michael rubbed the goosebumps off his forearm. Talking about it out loud made it seem more real. What type of visions? I see things when I, you know, I, when I lose it. This last time, I saw how everything is tied together, how it's all just one thing. And that's why the, the unthing is so wrong. It just, it doesn't belong. Michael stopped short and looked at his feet. And? Trindock prodded. I, I saw something that seemed to flow in and out of everything. I called it the, the breath of life. Trindock sat back. That's what I felt before the thing, the unthing. Trindock shrugged. It's as good as name as any, I guess. Before it attacked Kith, you touched it. Michael nodded. Trindock rubbed at his face. Then it's safe to say that it wants you just like Heather. She has the gift, too. I don't get it. There are two powers of creation. Anima, what you call the breath of life, and Gaia, the world we live in and all that live in her. Anima holds everything together. It connects all things. The force that they create together is called Omnia, and all sentient beings can tap into its power. When their minds are hushed and their hearts are free, when they are creating, but like all things, the ability waxes and wanes. There are those who can pull back the veil and harness it to create. Those are the ones who can choose to bond with the land and with the Nima and become an Anani. Well, how does it work? Michael asked. Well, that depends on the person, but it always hinges on belief. For me, I must picture what I want and believe that it will be done as I imagined it. When I open a portal tomorrow, I'll imagine a door between where we stand and where I want to take you. For others, it is knowing a thing so utterly to delve into its very existence and believing that you can manipulate it. For you, I suspect it is connected with your emotions. 
Maybe that's the only time when you're truly free, when you're overwhelmed and your mind stops whirling and you simply feel and believe. I have no doubt you have the ability to harness Omnia. I have no doubt that the Unthing is trapped in Amabilia's body and now needs either you or Heather Shackelford or both to free it from its prison and in turn possess one of you. It would use you like a puppet, using your abilities to rend creation apart. That mark that it gave you ties you to it in a way. And that is what drives your fury. You are torn between two worlds, being pulled apart, with the strings of the unthing winding around you. It's no wonder you're not howling in agony. Michael touched the sword. This helps. As I hoped it would. I didn't see things as clearly as I do now, but it was obvious back then that you needed help, and the weight you carried should not be borne alone. The smithy, at least that's what I call him, I saw him during one of my visions. His name was Oakshot, and he was the greatest weapon maker the world had ever seen, yours or mine. As with the creation of all things, the makers or artists fuse Omnia and some of themselves into their work. The sword is the last thing Oakshot made, and he poured his very spirit into the forging of it. The weapon is imbued with Oakshot's spirit and soul. It will never rust nor need sharpening, and it judges who and what it will harm. Michael's mind flashed back to his street performance when he drew the blade along his arm. How did you know it would help? I didn't. Trindock gave him a hint of a smile. I'm not omniscient. I saw your struggle, but I didn't fully understand it, and I still don't. But the instant you touched it, I knew I'd made the right decision. And I really did want some peace and quiet. Oakshot has a hard time understanding that not everyone is interested in smithing as he is. Thank you. It has helped. Yes, well, good. Trindok shifted in his seat and then stood. I will deliver your party to the Gigantis border, and it will still take a few days for you to travel to the Citadel. It's not much time, but you must find your way of harnessing Omnia. When Michael stood to rise... Trindok placed a hand on his shoulder. I have traveled closely with you for over a week, Michael. I know you are up to this task. Take heart. There are greater things you do not know working in your favor. Do not be discouraged and continue to fight the good fight. The gray-haired Anani stepped back, closed his eyes, and shimmered. His appearance changed to that of a dozen male attendants Michael had seen scurrying about the palace. I'll never get used to these stupid togas, Trendok said, striding with purpose completely contrary to how he looked. Tomorrow, at dusk, use your time wisely. Rest up. It may be the last you get before this is over. Trendok advised, leaving him alone. Michael glanced at his bedroom door, but he knew pursuing sleep would be futile. He drew his sword, examining the intricate details of the hilt. Fashioned from dark wood, the grip of the weapon had impossibly small images carved into its surface. Michael felt if he studied the images of moons and suns, it would tell a story of its making. He sat back, gently running his hand along the hilt and staring at nothing. Michael thought that he could feel Trindok use the Omnia to change his appearance. 
a faint tickling in the back of his head, or a slight tugging that seemed to point at the Anani. Reaching out with his mind, he felt something dark from the north. It felt like a sickness, and it made his mouth feel thick. Gradually, the dark gray sky faded to a light blue, dimming the light of the lamp. Steve and Bear strode into his room with his short friend complaining that he would have slept in but for Bear's devouring a whole pig that woke him up. Something that was blatantly false but still funny. Steve flopped down on the couch, one leg over its arm, and admitted that it was the excitement of the coming adventure that pushed sleep away. Listening to Steve and seeing the gleam in his eye, one would think that Christmas was only a day away and not a duel to the death with some evil entity. Both Bear and Steve expressed relief that they were in fact changing and not losing their minds. Throughout the morning, Steve would pause and sniff the air or stare at the wall, his lips moving slightly as if he were having a conversation with the rock. Bear seemed to have shed his guilty embarrassment for having to be constantly within reach of food. Steve teased Michael about his lack of change, although apparently it wasn't his imagination that his ears were a little pointier, and he was devoid of all facial hair like the other Hyperboreans. At the mention of it, Michael rubbed his hand along his smooth cheek. It was unfortunate. He was kind of proud of being able to grow a full beard at the age of 17. Steve examined Michael's sword again, something he did with a hushed awe, and repeated that the weapon was truly a work of art, though it didn't seem to talk to him like it did Michael, something he decided not to share with his friends. Another thing he didn't share was a connection he had walled off in his mind from the Metaf. He had forgotten about it, but the attack from the Ung thing brought it to the forefront of his mind, like a scratch you found on your arm that you didn't notice, but once discovered, seemed to constantly demand attention. He pictured it as a small, warm, glowing ball in the back of his head, still separated from the rest of his mind, but not walled off as harshly as before. Little lights danced inside the ball, and Michael was sure that one of them was Zoe. He focused on one, pressing against the glowing membrane of the ball, but not breaking it, and it pressed back, ever so gently. Warmth emitted from the little light that he now imagined glowed a faint red hue. To Michael, it felt like he was holding hands with her under the table, silently and secretly enjoying each other's closeness without the weird social commitments forced upon them when seen together by other people. They didn't have to be together or an item, and he didn't feel the need to bow to the public world and declare what type of relationship they bore. Michael felt the inexplicable joy of being close to a girl he hadn't quite figured out how he felt about, and in the moment felt no need to figure it out. It wasn't until Steve asked him what he was grinning about that Michael jerked mentally away and muttered, Nothing, to Steve, who didn't look the least bit convinced. Heather, Ken, and Stacy joined them later. Stacy showed them a game of dice she had learned, and for a short time while they played, the rest of the world fell away, and they remembered what it was like to feel like kids again. They went over the plan again. Zoe's group would cause an argument with one of the guards drawing their attention, and Zine would lead Michael's friends out of the palace clothed in the robes of the Trindonian monks who would be out in force during Nocte Infernum. Later, they would meet the Metaf in a garden by the city wall, one that Zine was familiar with, and then Trindok would escort them under cover of darkness while the city was still deep in its revelry. 
It was a good plan, with few moving parts. Distract, hide, escape. Evening came, and they each went to their separate rooms. Nothing passed throughout the night. Michael was not resummoned to the king. There were no dreams. The night passed peacefully, with quiet anticipation of the coming escape. Michael woke early and packed his saddlebags, eager to be off, but still enjoying the rest before the journey. All continued to be calm until the moment when Leander burst into his room and spoke the first words to him since realizing Michael was a man. The frantic monk, in obvious anguish, closed the door behind him and whispered, You must flee. The king is dead. Well, that's all for this episode, journeyers. Come back next week and we'll see if Michael and his friends can get out of the city alive. Until then, thank you for listening and be good to one another. <laughs>